Well, good morning and welcome to week four, our fourth and final week of this series, Villains. We've had a lot of fun with this series, but as you've already heard, um, emphasized already, we're really excited about what's happening next week. Our first ever PC Kids Sunday where our kids are going to join us and lead us in worship. So you're not going to want to miss that next week. See, there are things about God, there are things about the Bible, there are things about the life of faith that our kids seem to understand, and we adults are the ones who are slow to get. See, some of you might not know this about me, but for uh, a decade, my wife Delilah and I spent our Sunday evenings in a, a tiny little church out in Selma, where we gathered with a bunch of neighborhood kids to tell the stories of the Bible. And we did that not by passing out Bibles and reading verse for verse, you know, and the Lord spake unto, not that, but we acted them out with our bodies. We had these kids uh, who with their facial expressions and all that squirming elementary school energy, their giggling and their laughter, we acted out these stories together. We brought these characters of old um, to life. And it was amazing. There was so much that I learned in that experience. Because I would be there with these young actors who sometimes didn't know the ends of the stories that they were telling. But sometimes, I'll admit, I would come across a passage where I would be like, first of all, why is this even in the Bible in the first place? And second of all, why in the world am I supposed to pass this crazy, weird story on to the next generation? Like, what's with this? But often what I would find out on Sunday evenings is that those wild, bizarre, crazy stories that we don't often talk about on Sunday mornings would turn out to be the crowd favorites on Sunday nights. Um, that was definitely true of today's story. I think we got a shot from uh, a couple years ago when we were telling it. Um, you might see uh, there's little um, Balaam who's going to be riding on his donkey there, and we got the angel lurking in the background. If you're not familiar with this scene, you will be by the end of the morning. See, what these kids taught me is that sometimes it takes humor and wonder and trust to get what these stories want to teach us. See, sometimes we can be so serious and kind of wrinkle our brows when we come to the Bible and think that we're doing a service to it and that we're being so profound. But really, sometimes the very point of a passage is its punchline, is to show us God's sense of humor. And this morning, we're going to need a sense of humor for where we're going. Kids uh, love villain stories in part because they trust that in the end, the villains are kind of going to get that home alone uh, thing where everything goes wrong for them. They just sort of trust that the villain's going to get it in the end, and that allows them to laugh at these stories. But of course, an interest in villains isn't something that we grow out of. We adults have our own mature taste, strange attraction to the story of villains. In fact, the past decade has seen an explosion of stories told from the unorthodox position of the villain's perspective. That's the perspective of our story from the Bible this morning. So what characters am I talking about? Well, think Walter White from Breaking Bad, right? Uh, he's this incredibly complex character who we all know is a criminal. He's the villain. He's the bad guy. But he's also what we call an anti-hero, meaning, yes, he disturbs and disgusts us, but we're also strangely attracted to him. We're rooting for him, pulling for him. There's a lot about him that, that hits on something in our own hearts. Brian Cranston played this compelling villain who made us think and shudder, and we gave him four Emmys. Why do characters like this strike such a chord with us? Well, in part, it has to do a lot with what we've been talking about in this series. 
In part, it's because we come to learn that the world and our humanity is a whole lot more complicated than that black and white, heroes and villains, good guys, bad guys, stories that we're raised on. And the Bible has characters like those that we've been talking about that press this very point, that, that point out that the line dividing a hero and a villain is sometimes very thin. If there was any quote I could leave you with from this series, it would be this one. These are the brilliant words of the great Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He writes this about our desire to label. If only, he says, there were evil people insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were only necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the hearts of every human being. How true is that? So fair warning, this morning we're going to have a story that has a lot of comedy to it, but it's also one of those stories that because it's full of villains, it's going to ask us to look inside of ourselves, to notice how our own motives, how the directions of our own lives is like these characters in the text today. So this morning, who's our main uh, bad guy? Our bad guy today is Balaam, son of Beor. Okay, who is Balaam? Well, he actually appears in eight different books of the Bible spanning the Old and New Testaments. Um, and Balaam, or Balaam, has a somewhat ambiguous reputation. Like, to say that he revels in the gray area is to do him an understatement. He's a living contradiction in terms. We would say that Balaam is a true prophet and a pagan. Um, when it comes to the words of Balaam, the prophet Micah in the Old Testament gives Balaam a big thumbs up. He says, hey, Balaam's words are great. But when we get to the New Testament, we find Peter and Jude explicitly warning Christians to never follow in the way of Balaam. So words of Balaam good, way of Balaam bad. What's going on here? In fact, when you expand uh, the scope of what we know about Balaam to include things beyond the Bible, his reputation becomes even more mixed. See, about 50 years ago, there was this archaeological dig, and they uncovered this inscription uh, on this wall. We only have part of it, but this is called the Deirala Dig, and what they found is this long-lost story of one Balaam son of Beor from a perspective that we never had before in the Bible. And in this story, Balaam is presented as a figure who's able to see into the plans of the gods. This is a polytheistic society, many gods. He's able to see into the plans of the gods. He finds out that there's this massive disaster coming, and he somehow intervenes in the situation to stave off that catastrophe and effectively save the world. He's unquestionably the hero in this story. And yet he's cast in quite a different light in the Bible. So uh, Balaam is what we would call or would have been called a seer, okay? This is his profession. Well, what is a seer? We don't necessarily think of seers anymore. A seer was one who could see into the spiritual world and into the future. So think part sorcerer, part fortune teller. And of course, that strikes us as odd, us good 21st century people. It seems a bit superstitious. But of course, today we still value the power of predictions. Making predictions is really difficult. So we want our experts to be able to predict accurately. If you can predict the weather, if you can present, predict something as trivial as the NFL draft, if you know how Wall Street is going to be or a presidential election is going to turn out, uh, we want to hear from you. If you can see into the future, it gives you control and power. And everyone in his day agreed, Balaam can do that. 
And beyond that, he knew how to influence the future. When Balaam talked, things happened. His words had a kind of weight. Um, And, you know, today we call social media personalities influencers. But Balaam was known as one who could influence the gods themselves. Very powerful person. And with these two powerful abilities, uh, he makes his living as a sort of free agent holy man or a for-profit prophet, if you will. And today, as we jump into our text, we find Balaam weighing a potentially career-making job offer. Uh, A king named Balak, which is really similar to Balaam, it's going to be a bit confusing, but think Balak, K for king, Balaam, M for magician, maybe that helps. A king named Balak of Moab has sent a message Balaam's way. It reads this way, Numbers chapter 22, Balaam, a people has come out of Egypt and they cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now Balaam, come and put a curse on these people, for I know that whoever you curse is cursed. And whoever you bless is blessed. Okay, what's going on? Well, who are these people who are coming out of Egypt? Maybe that rings a bell for some of us. The people who have come out of Egypt are God's people, the Hebrews or the Israelites, who have just recently been uh, delivered by God from slavery. Think Prince of Egypt, Red Sea, you know, that's all happened. And now they're in this awkward in-between stage where they're no longer in Egypt, but they also have not settled into their new land, and they're in this in-between vulnerable situation as migrants. They're wandering around, reliant on their relationship with this new God who's freed them. And in their wanderings, they happen to cross a border into the territory of Moab. Well, the king of Moab is Balak, and he hears that this mass of people has crossed the border of his land. And like the larger population, his immediate reaction is to be filled with fear. Uh, As far as he can see, his kingdom just simply doesn't have the resources to care for these newcomers and his own people. So he's trying to protect the interests of his kingdom, and he determines that the politically expedient thing to do is to drive out all these migrants. The only thing that's holding him back, though, is that his spies come back and tell him, actually, Balaam, it's, Balak, it's, it's not that simple, really, because these migrants have a special connection to a very powerful God who's blessed them. So now they have such a powerful blessing from this God that no army can overcome that God's protection. Well, King Balak hears this report, and he's something of a problem solver, so he thinks to himself, and he realizes that what he needs is someone who can put a powerful curse, a hex, on these people that will counter God's blessing. Because once you remove God from the situation, then the army can come down, problem solved. So, Balak and Balaam enter into a kind of negotiation. The first offer from Moab comes to Balaam, and very wise thing to do, he sleeps on the offer, and in the middle of the night, the Bible tells us that God comes in a vision um, to Balaam and tells him, hey, those are my people, they're blessed, don't go and try and curse them. To his credit, pretty simple, Balaam wakes up the next morning and tells the Moabite officials, sorry, God's refused uh, that I come with you, so I can't, Um, have a nice day. But the king, Balak, isn't used to not getting his way. Uh, he thinks that Balaam is just playing hard to get. Like, anybody have a, someone in their family who's like that tough negotiator who like enjoys haggling for things at farmer's markets or yard sales? That's sort of what um, Balak imagines is the personality of Balaam. So what Balak does, the king does, is he gets all of his A-team salespeople in his land of Moab, 
And he sends this massive party with lots and lots of money and a blank check to go to Balaam and make him an offer that no thinking person can refuse. And well, this time, Balaam, he says all the right things, but if you read between the lines, you can feel him begin to waver a bit as to whether he's going to take the job or not. He says this, hey, I can't say anything, Moab, without God's permission, not even if you gave me a whole house of gold, hint, hint, but let me sleep on it again and double check with God. See, I don't think Balaam is like a terrible guy. I just think he's a pragmatist like many of us. And the voice of pragmatism is powerful. The voice of pragmatism says this. The voice of pragmatism says, be realistic, do what works, check the bottom line. A couple of months ago, I was talking with a, a good friend of mine from here at Prodigal Church, and he, he's a smart young guy. He's on the job market looking for different career paths. And he told me, he was like, Brad, he's like, dude, I, I'll be honest, I want to do what's in the best interest of my family. I want to make the right decision. I want to do what's wise. But when I'm just surfing online, I'll be honest, he's like, I just scroll down to the bottom of the page and just check the bottom line of the salary. That's so often how many of us make our decisions. And I think that's what Balaam's doing here. And who can blame him? See, when the mortgage is due and you've got a stack of bills on your coffee table, when the kids are going back to school and need new clothes, when little Balaam Jr. wants to go out and play travel ball, if you're on fixed income, and it's fixed too low, well, maybe God can be just a bit more pragmatic. But see, sometimes in choosing what seems to us to be the pragmatic path, the path that's going to work, we can become blind to the presence of God. Whatever the case, Balaam sleeps on uh, Moab's second offer, their best offer, and this time in the night, God comes to him and says, okay, Balaam, for whatever reason, we don't know why, he says, you can go now, but don't say anything that I don't tell you. So God gives it permission. Balaam wakes up in the morning. He saddles his donkey, and he sets out for the land of Moab to talk to the king. And all of the sudden, without a word of explanation, not so much as a hint, we find that there's an angel of God blocking Balaam's path. And this is incredibly confusing because God has just given Balaam permission to take this path, and now God has blocked the path. What's going on? This is an interpretive question that has stumped readers for generations. So I, I can't pretend that we know exactly what's going on here, what's changed in the situation, but I do find a very helpful comment comes from St. Ambrose, who asked the question that we're all asking this morning. Uh, he wrote this. 1,700 years ago, he asked this question. What offense does Balaam commit? except that he said one thing and plotted another. See, that's what leads us sometimes onto the wrong path, is sometimes when our motives become mixed. When we set out to do one thing, and on the way, we begin to change our minds. Maybe some of that is happening in Balaam. In any case, what follows is one of the most bizarre and enjoyable scenes in all of the Bible. It's something that seems like it's straight out of a fairy tale story and not a sacred piece of scripture, but this is how it goes. There's an angel of the Lord standing in the middle of this path against Balaam in broad daylight, a wide open road. And the seer, for whatever reason, the one whose profession is to see, the seer can't see it. But the donkey he's riding sure can. It lurches out of the lane, takes him off-roading, and Balaam is confused. He whips the, the beast back onto the road. 
So the angel goes down a bit further. And now the angel uh, chooses this spot of the road that's between these two stone walls, a stone wall on either side. So it's a narrower road, and uh, the angel's standing there. So now the donkey veers to the side to brush past the angel, but in doing so, he scratches his master's leg up against the stone wall. Balaam's enraged with pain. He begins to hurl more abuse at the poor animal. And finally, like any good fairy tale, we get the third thing. We get the third path. And um, now it tells us that the angel picks the narrowest place on the whole trail, this choke point, this footpath, where the Bible says you didn't have space to turn either to the left or the right. God is funneling Balaam into this confrontation with his messenger, and the donkey has no uh, recourse but to just lie down in the middle of the road and not go a step further. And now Balaam goes ballistic. He throws his whip to the side and he takes out his staff and begins to defeat, to, to, um, to beat his poor defenseless donkey. And here we're going to jump into the text, going with a more traditional translation of the Hebrew here. God intervenes. And the Lord opened the mouth of the ass. And she said unto Balaam, what have I done unto thee that thou hast smitten me these three times? And Balaam, not missing a beat, answered his donkey, you've made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. And the ass said unto Balaam, Am not I thine ass, upon which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, Balaam said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. Like, what I wouldn't give to have Eddie Murphy do a reading of that part, right? Reprising his role as donkey. The irony of this scene runs deep. The joke has layers. Let, let's appreciate just a few of them. First, the seer is blind, but a dumb ass speaks. The prophet, who is said to convince the gods, loses a debate to a pack mule. The magician makes a jackass of himself, while the donkey becomes the true seer. And the one who wishes for a sword to judge another finds a sword prepared for him. And at the end of it all, here we find Balaam lying face down beside the donkey at the angel's feet, essentially imitating the posture of this beast who he's just beaten for having laid down there. And if that wasn't enough, when the angel finally uh, begins to speak, he butts in on the donkey's side, saying, Balaam, what are you doing beating this animal three times? Uh, your path is reckless in the eyes of God. In fact, the angel says, uh, no, uh, your donkey's pretty much seen it right all along. I'll be honest, like, I was sent here to kill you, and I was going to, but I would have let her live, though. Like, she's cool. It's just the whole scene is just outrageous. But here's the thing. Our lives are also outrageous when we become blinded by anger, by greed, by pride. And there's a powerful pattern at work here. No, I, I don't think that maybe you can expect uh, Fido to have a conversation with you tonight on your walk. But do keep your ears open because I can tell you this. With God, the beaten down and the voiceless are not left without a say. The beaten down and the voiceless are not left without a say. Yes, God can speak through whoever he chooses, but he has a track record of using those from below the humble, the poor, who get to share in God's final say and last laugh. The Bible tells us that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
So now Balaam, at the end of this whole scene, he knows he's gotten the worst of this. He's embarrassed. He's done, wants to go home. But in fact, the angel tells him, no, 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 Balaam, um, you've got to keep going to Moab because God has a word for that king who thought to curse his people. In scene three, we find the meeting of these two characters. It says this, when King Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he ran out to meet him at the Moabite border at the edge of his territory. And the king said to Balaam, did I not send you an urgent summons? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really not able to reward you? In essence, it's about time. Like, have you ever seen a rich person have to wait in line for something? Uh, This king isn't used to waiting. So he's annoyed. Why hasn't his power, why hasn't his say sped up this whole process? Well, I have come to you now, Balaam replied, but I can't say whatever I please. I must only speak what God puts in my mouth. Well, that's a, that's a pious thing to, to say, Balak thinks, but his whole kingdom of Moab is ready for a good cursing. Um, and King Balak knows, uh, as most people in this time, in their worldview would have known, he knows that you can actually manipulate the gods. It's really not that difficult to manipulate the gods. If you can go to the right place, if you can offer the right sacrifice, if you can say the magic words, you can get the gods to do what you want. So granted, what the king and the seer do in these next two chapters, if you were to open your Bible and read it, it's really bizarre. It's a spree of animal sacrifices. It's very confusing. But I do want to point out that there's, there's an assumption in the Moabite worldview that I think is quite like our American one when it comes to approaching the divine in our spiritual lives. See, in our own user-friendly world, in this technological era that we're all living in, where with one click, Amazon Prime can deliver whatever you need by tomorrow. It's easy to be tempted to see Christianity as just a game of doing and saying whatever works, pressing buttons, pulling levers, to get someone to deliver what we want. Show up to church, post the right stuff on social media, and poof, hashtag blessed. But the God of the Bible explodes these kind of childish expectations. Notice what happens. Okay, so here's what happens. Um, The royal court of Moab has made uh, preparations for this grand cursing. They have picked the perfect spot. They all hike up a mountain to this perfect place. It's a sacred site that's overlooking the Hebrew camp below. Um, And there they've prepared the perfect religious gesture. Seven altars, sacrificing seven rams and seven oxen. It's perfect religious order. They're ready to hear the musical sound of curses come from this great seer's lips and strike their enemies below. There's a drum roll, and Balaam, the greatest seer in the land, steps forth in the assembly, and he opens his mouth, and he says, Balak brought me here to curse these people. But how can I curse whom God has blessed? May my end be like theirs, and may I die the death of the righteous. Not only does he refuse to curse the people, but he seems to wish that his future would be like theirs. And the king is immediately outraged. He's embarrassed in front of his whole court. He pulls Balaam aside and says to him, what have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies, but you've done nothing but bless them. And Balaam's like, hey man, don't shoot the messenger. This word isn't mine. This is from God. So Balak has him try again. Maybe they just picked the wrong spot. So the whole court gets together. They hike up a second mountain. They're getting in their steps for the day. 
They go up, another seven sacrifices, but this time, when Balaam opens his lips, the blessing that he speaks is even more explicit. But just like Balaam beat the donkey three times to try and stay in his stubborn path, so Balak tries to curse a third time. The charade repeats for this, the perfect trifecta, and the only difference this time is that we're told that the Spirit of God comes down on Balaam and he speaks his most powerful blessing of all. At this, Balak is enraged. He claps his hands in frustration and he kicks Balaam out of the kingdom. But as he's sending Balaam packing, as he's kicking him out of the borders of his land, he's insulting him for not being smart enough to know a great offer that would have made him a rich man. But as he sends him away, the Bible tells us that Balaam takes one more glance at that migrant camp down below. And as he does, the Bible says that he's given one more fleeting vision of a figure to come from those people. The saying here is is very mysterious, somewhat poetic, but he says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not yet. A star will come out of Jacob and the scepter of a king from the tents of Israel. Okay, I know that sounds weird, right? But get this, according to church tradition, the pagan Balaam is granted a vision of Jesus. The star that will one day shine on that famous child's birth at Bethlehem. The child who will grow up to become a king who opens the eyes of the blind and heals the ears of the deaf. That king who will one day come down from another mountaintop to reveal God's heart to the world by teaching. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. See, God has always been in the business of turning curses to blessings. As I invite Noah in the band back up here. God has always been in the business of turning curses to blessings. And that remains true today. He'll use anyone, hero, villain, livestock, whoever, to get that message across. See, it's easy to become like Balaam and Balak. It's easy to become set against someone or something. Which is why it's so critical that we evaluate our paths. In our words, in the direction of our lives, are we stubbornly holding on to curse someone, some group, that God has actually called blessed? See, often when we're quick to curse, we end up in the way of Balaam. That is, we find ourselves on a path that God opposes, and we're blind to it. We can't even see it. So this morning I ask you, what's holding you back from recognizing the presence of God. Pride, fear, greed, anger, easy religious answers, these are the things that hold back Balaam and Balak from recognizing God's presence. This is why they're remembered as villains to this day. What's holding you back? But here's where I want to end on the good news of this passage. See, this this passage is good news, especially for those of us who feel powerless. For those of us who sometimes feel like We're voiceless, like what we say doesn't matter, it doesn't change anything, like we're pawns in someone else's game. This story pushes back against that to point out that no matter how the powerful plot and the villain's scheme, God speaks on behalf of the defenseless. God speaks on behalf of the powerless and he gives them a voice. If God can speak through a donkey, he can speak through you, he can speak through me. God gets the final say and the last laugh. Let's pray. 
God, thank you for bringing us here together, God. Thank you for being a God who is involved in history, involved in our lives, that you see the paths that we take, that you see what's going on in our hearts and minds, and God, that you're, you're the God who turns curses to blessings. So Lord, I pray that today you would open our eyes, that, um, that we would be able to evaluate with your wisdom, the paths that we're on, that we would see where we're going, where we, that we would see where we're standing in opposition to some group and that actually we're standing in opposition to you. And God, would you open our eyes, open our hearts, humble us, God, so that we, in a world that's full of curses and divisions, God, that we may be people who speak your words of blessing. Through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.